Hi, and welcome to the Mind Affinity podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm chatting with Alison, the proof fairy. So stick around to find out more about her after this. The mind is capable of amazing things, and yet so many people use that immense power to hold themselves back. Imagine what you could achieve harnessing that power and using it to push yourself forward. This is the Mind Affinity podcast, the place for advice and inspiration to help you empower yourself. Alison, hi, how are you doing? Hi, Duncan, I'm very well, thank you. It's really good to see you today. It's really nice to be chatting to you from sunny Portugal. And it is sunny. It's glorious out there today. It was a bit foggy first thing this morning, but the fog has cleared and uh, yeah, it's looking looking good out there now. Excellent. So let's, I, I suppose we should start by introducing who you are, uh, other than the, the wonderful person that proofreads my weekly monkey call email that goes out um, to stop me sending out some ridiculous spelling errors. Um, who, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? I am Alison Thompson. Um, I yeah, I work as the proof fairy. So I, I do proofreading and I do copywriting and, and newsletters and all sorts of things. But I primarily work with authors to help them self-publish their books. So I either help, well, both. I coach them through the writing process and finding their idea and planning their content and getting the book written. And then I do all the fiddly stuff. So I do the editing, the proofreading, the formatting, the cover design. Um, and I even upload it to Amazon for them. So I kind of do everything from, wow. from start to finish. All managed. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I also have another little side business that I, know, I don't really talk about. Um, my son has ADHD and various um, special educational needs. And I've written a book about raising a child with ADHD. And I have a um, another business where I have a um, an online parenting course for parents of children with ADHD. So I've kind of got that as well. Cool. I didn't even know about that. Ah, there you go. There's a lot you don't know about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, do you know what? Let's talk a little bit about ADHD because I find it a fascinating subject. I, I've, I've worked with some people who have ADHD and it's, it's one of those things. So I'm, I'm not always a fan of labels. Um, sometimes we can be too quick to to latch on to a label and feel like it defines us. But at the same time, it's one of those labels um, where I've, I've found it can really help people to understand certain sort of mm-hmm. character traits of theirs um, in, in a way where they suddenly realize, oh, they're not, they're not faulty, you know, they're not broken. Um, and, and actually ADHD can be wonderful when you use it well and when you learn how to embrace elements of it. Uh, but it can also really get in the way. So what, well, yeah, what is ADHD um, for those that are listening that don't know? And what's your experience with it? Yeah. Right. So, yes, yeah, so ADHD is a, um, a biological condition. It's a, um, a situation in the brain where the brain doesn't produce enough dopamine. So as human beings, we need dopamine to motivate us to do things. Um, so, you know, you might not want to get out of bed in the morning, but the dopamine in your brain gives you that kick to say, yeah, you know, I really need to get out. You might not want to sit down and do some boring work, but your dopamine makes you do it because you know you've got to do it. Um, in ADHD, the dopamine base level is much lower than it is in the average brain. Um, so it means that things that you're excited about, your dopamine will be, you, you, you get 
your brain <laughs> your brain produces more dopamine when you're excited about something it's like a, a bit of a like serotonin it's a kind of happiness motivation enthusiasm um chemical so if you're doing something that really excites you your dopamine level will come up to the the level where your your body will kick in and it will do it and it will concentrate and it will focus and it'll it'll perform efficiently but something that doesn't excite you your dopamine level is actually too low for your brain to, to do all those executive functions that it needs to do for you to do things which is why kids can spend hours playing computer games or playing football or doing things that really engage them and motivate them but when it comes to something that doesn't engage them like maths homework for example it's not that they they don't want to do it their brain just doesn't have the right chemical balance to give them the focus the motivation the concentration levels to get on with it um there's all sorts of other things thrown into ADHD as well. And, and actually, um, children, especially with ADHD, very, very rarely have just ADHD. They quite often have autistic spectrum disorder or um, dys dyspraxia or dyslexia or oppositional defiant disorder or something else going on. So it's kind of, it's, it's, there is no one size fits all solution. Um, it can be very difficult to, it can be difficult to diagnose when there's lots of other things going on as well. Um, but yeah, my, my involvement with it is that my son was, my son is lovely, but he's always been very difficult. <laughs> he won't mind me saying that. Um, when he was a kid, he was, he had a very short fuse. He had very low concentration levels. He had very high energy levels. Um, very, very different to his older sister. Um, he, he's, when he started at school, it was kind of very obvious that there was something different about him to, to the rest of the class. Um, he was excluded from school at the end of year one, um, his first school exclusion. And then I was, I'd already seen my doctor about him and he was then diagnosed with ADHD and autistic traits. Um, and then he went to a, um, a special unit for a bit and then we moved house and he started school again and then he was excluded at the age of 10. So he's had two permanent school exclusions because he couldn't concentrate, he couldn't focus and he was bouncing around off the walls basically. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I, I kind of, I'd always wanted to write a book and a friend challenged me to do it. And I thought, right, I'll write a book about my son because that's kind of what I know. Um, you know, we've, we've been through an awful lot with him. Uh, which is kind of how I got into becoming an ADHD expert, which is what, I, what writing a book does for you. It makes you it makes you become an expert in something. Um, what you were saying about labels, though, is really interesting because when Dan was fifteen, um, his pediatrician um, we went to see her, and she suddenly jumped up and, and grabbed a folder down and got a piece of paper out and started ticking some boxes. And I was kind of, what are you doing? And she said. Do you know, I know, I know we've always said ADHD and autistic traits, but actually seeing him now, I'm pretty sure that it's ADHD and Asperger's, which is now high functioning autism. But you know, yeah. 10 years ago, it was still Asperger's. Um, and she said, so she said to him, so what do you think about having Asperger's now as well as ADHD? And he said, it's just another label, really, isn't it? He said, I am who I am. You can call it whatever you want. I'm still the same person. Mm. So... Yeah, so for him, the label doesn't really mean anything. But actually, yes, in terms of, especially in school, getting the right support for children, when you know what you're dealing with, when it has a name, it's much easier to find, to put support in place than when it's just some something going on and you don't know what it is. So, mm. um, yeah, the, the kids with ADHD sometimes get accused of being naughty kids. 
they're not. It's actually a brain deficiency. It's a difference in the brain. Um, and, and there's not a real deficiency. Difference. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And there's there's a there's a danger there as well when you start saying things like, "Oh, it's an you know, this is a naughty child." Though again, it's it's labels, but it's labels that you're then suggesting to them especially when it's repeated over and over and it can be really hard for an adult let alone for a child to not then absorb that and take that on and become that and allow that to be Mm -hmm. part of what defines who they are because that's what they're being labeled as constantly yeah I think one of the big one of the biggest issues for kids with ADHD is is they struggle with self-esteem and confidence because Mm -hmm. everything they do seems to be wrong they're the ones who are getting told off all the time for stuff that's really out of their control um and yeah when you keep being told off enough you you start to believe what you're what you're being told don't you so well uh, uh, <laughs> i will not go into the depth that i was about to go into um but the school system isn't exactly set up in the best way for that um and could really <laughs> do with some updating but let's move on from that otherwise i could rant for far <laughs> too long um and it's oh me too a whole other podcast that is <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So it's interesting how you mention, uh, obviously, dopamine plays a huge part in it. There's also a, a really common kind of misunderstanding. We're still learning, but there's still so much to learn about how the brain works and how different chemicals and hormones interact with us. Um, and dopamine is, is a really interesting one because you know, it always used to be the idea that you just you do something good, you get a dopamine hit, and then you want to do the good thing more. Um, but actually more recent studies have shown that we get a dopamine trickle which actually has a lot of control over us uh, in terms of how we feel so for example a great example of this is tiktok don't know if you've used the app uh, i don't know if you're down with the kids um but it's <laughs> i'm way too old for that <laughs> it's it's true on all social media but tiktok's just a really great example of it because it's built on like 30 second or one minute videos and it's just a constant mm. scroll function and you think you know 30 seconds one minute you scroll through a few videos you're not going to be on there very long before you know it, an hour later you're still scrolling and part of the reason for that is you get a little trickle of dopamine that's saying go on keep going keep going keep going because if you just keep going then we'll get that really big hit of dopamine when you find the really good video that you wanted to watch you know so that could be some you know it could be the 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 really cute kitten video and it could be that you spend you know minutes scrolling before you actually see one video that you're even that engaged with of course the algorithm's Mm. there to try and promote videos that you do find more engaging and so on um but yeah that that trickle effect of the dopamine going go on do a bit more do a bit more do a bit more is actually um a really vital and important dopamine function beyond that hit of dopamine mm. that you get when you finally get your your reward dopamine as it were um right that, yeah yeah so you when you that talk about it from an asd uh, sorry adhd perspective uh, obviously that again it ties in and makes more sense with the being able to focus on a task and keep going because even though the task mm. itself may not may still be just as repetitive and and unrewarding as the other task because it's a topic that excites you you've got that leading into getting that bigger dopamine hit and so those smaller Mm -hmm. dopamine hits work better for you in that state exactly it's 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 just the where the baseline is the baseline in in a a normal brain is kind of 
here in the middle somewhere. You can't see that, can you? But um, and in the ADHD brain, it's that much lower. So it takes more. You know, it takes more, which is actually why why people with ADHD tend to be risk takers, tend to be, you know, mm. you quite often have people who are into extreme sports and that kind of thing, because they need that bigger, that bigger push to actually push the dopamine up to the kind of excitement level because they're coming from a lower place to start with. Mm. So what was your experience? Was that the first time you'd written a book? Yes, it was. Yes, and is is that what led? I'd always wanted. To, I mean, no, I was going to say I, I'd always wanted to. When I was a kid, I used to write things, not really stories. I used to write news articles. Um, I did have a couple of things published in the local paper, and um, I, I I used to yeah I used to to kind of cut stories out of the newspaper and write my own versions of them and keep them in a little a little diary. Um, and I did keep a diary as well, which actually played. Um, a huge part in in my life actually which is a, a kind of a whole other story that if you want to talk about that's, that's great but um but yeah the, the the ADHD book was the first the first book I have also written an erotic novel um Ooh. under a pen name so no, find it um <laughs> and I've put together a journal <laughs> an ADHD parenting journal and I'm kind of part way through two other books I've, I'm I started writing a book about writing books and then I moved house and lost the plan and kind of went, oh, I can't finish that now. But I've just recently found the plan again. So I need to get back to doing that. I'm my own worst student, you know. Um, and also, I kind of want to write something autobiographical about me rather than about my son, um, because I've kind of had to start again a couple of times. And now I find myself in Portugal and there's kind of all sorts of crazy stuff that's happened along the way so so yeah I think there's a book in a book in another book in me about me <laughs> excellent so talk to me a little bit about like what what led you to move to Portugal what have been the ups and the downs along that journey wow so um we've got to go back right back to when I was probably about 20 I guess um I had a, a very happy childhood um with my mum and my dad but my dad has always been my dad worked funny hours, so he was kind of not around much, even though we, you know, he was there. And he was also not around emotionally either. Um, and I think that has played a, a, a huge part on who I am because it's kind of, looking back now, I can see that my whole life I've been searching for that kind of male role model almost, which has led me into a, a lot of usually totally unsuitable relationships. Um, <laughs> Um, and it's also affected the way that I've behaved in relationships, especially when I had kids. It's affected because I, I didn't I didn't have a very good role model of what a father was. So I've kind of that's affected the role that people have played as fathers in, in, yeah. you know, in my life. Um, but yeah, my, I mean, my mum's absolutely fantastic, did an amazing job. And I had a, a very, very happy childhood. Um, left home when I was 18, I got a job working for a local newspaper in West London, and it just happened to be in the same town that my boyfriend at the town lived in, which, which was a coincidence, complete coincidence. Um, so yeah, I moved out and, and, and worked and was him for a bit and then had my heart broken by somebody and then had a, a relationship with the man who went on to become my children's father, um, who uh, and it was a, a very violent relationship it very quickly became very violent within about three months of knowing him um and I like a fool because I was a bit on the rebound moved in with him so I didn't have anywhere anywhere else to go and I kind of 
it got to a stage where I kind of went, you know what, this is what my life's going to be. So I should just kind of get on with it, really. Um, and we had a couple of kids, <laughs> which is sort of, yeah, which is which is not the right thing to do, really. But, but, it's, but I gave you an so, ultimate. It is so common to hear that kind of story and that experience of feeling like there is no other choice. Now, there's always another choice. And mm. when when people look back at it, it's very easy, especially in, <laughs> please forgive me, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth and I'd be really keen to hear whether or not this, this is true for you, but with a lot of people I speak to and clients that have been through similar things, um, at the time, it doesn't feel like there is another choice. And then when you eventually do get to the point where you have to make that other choice or that other choice becomes, you know, doing something different just becomes absolutely essential normally is what, there's some situation that leads to that. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, you then look back and beat yourself up even more for not acknowledging that there was not another choice to begin with. Oh my word, yes, yes. I mean, there, there was a moment, the very first time he, he ever hit me, um, I left, I got on the bus and I went back to my mum's. Um, and I said, what had happened? Uh, well, I didn't see, I said we had a row, I think, because she didn't know about the violence for quite a long time. But I said, we'd had a row and I'd moved out and blah, blah, blah. And she came with me the next day back to the flat so I could pick up my stuff. Um, and there was a, <laughs> he'd, it turned out after he'd hit me, he kind of completely lost the plot. I'd, I'd run out of the pub where we were and, and, got, and gone on the bus to my mum's and he'd gone a bit berserk and he punched a, a pillow in the post and he'd broken his hand. And there was a little hospital A&E card on the, the side and I saw it and I, I said, oh, he's broken his hand. Oh, poor thing. Oh, no. and I kind of felt sorry for him. And I said, oh, well, I can't leave now, can he? Because, mm. And I think yeah, that, at that, that was the stage when I should, I, when there, everything was saying to me, leave, this is a really bad situation. You have to go. And I didn't. And I stayed and we were together for, for eight years in the end. Um, so yeah, and looking back now, I just think, oh, hell were you doing you why did you stay but if I hadn't stayed I wouldn't have had my kids and you know well exactly <laughs> I wouldn't undo and, my <laughs> and the thing is it's, it's really easy to look back and um, with hindsight and say oh well at that point I should have I'm using air quotes on a podcast I uh, should have done this yeah. or I should have done that um <laughs> but ultimately anyone else with the same experiences in the same situation would make the same decisions and the same choices mm -hmm. and looking back at it you're looking at it from a, a whole different set of experiences and a whole different understanding it's it, people talk so much about the importance of growth and and accepting who you are now so that you can move forward and, and that's all great but so often it seems to be coupled with looking back at the past and and saying oh how stupid i was back then or or how uh naive i was and it's like well do you really want to be in a place where you grow into the future and look back and think the same about right now? Showing some understanding and support towards your past self and the decisions and choices you, you felt you needed to make at the time surely makes it easier to accept who you are now and to continue to grow so that you don't need to look down on who you are now, right? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I know, I know why, you know, I know why I didn't leave. I know, I know that some of that was, was a kind of lack of confidence on my part. Some of that was a, a fear that things would be worse 
in all sorts of ways if I left. Um, of it was the thing you often hear of, well, I loved him and I thought I could change him. You know, I was, I was going to be the one to change him, which you, you hear all the time. Um, but yeah, I did beat myself up at the time. And now I kind of think, well, you know, that, that was you then. And, and you did what was the right thing for you at the time, actually. You know, even if it wasn't really, but you did what you could at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we went on, we, we had two children and, and things were okay, actually. I, I think in a violent relationship, there comes a point when the violence doesn't have to happen anymore because I, I was so broken that I kind of towed the line. You know, he didn't, there wasn't any threat of violence needed anymore, um, which again, is not, not a nice place to be in, but it kind of meant that we did have a, a few years when things were, were sort of okay. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, but then there came a point when over something stupid, I think it was an argument about pantomime tickets. It was something as pathetic as that. Um, he punched me on the chin and I was sitting in the armchair and I had one of the kids on the floor in front of me and one sitting on the arm of the chair next to me. And I just thought this is, you know, this is, I'd forgotten. I think I'd forgotten what, what it could be like, what he could be like. Um, and I started, <laughs> I, I came across a website called Open Diary. Um, I'd always kept diaries as a teenager, which sadly have been lost because I'd love to read my teenage diaries again. That'd be so much fun. Um, and I kind of tried to try to keep journals and diaries, but I was always scared that he'd find them. So I'd, I'd hide them and then I'd panic and then I'd rip them up and, and throw them away. But I found this website. This was kind of in, you know, two, gosh, when did I find it? 2000, I think, the first, the first entry I wrote in it. Um, and I started writing this diary and it was just about, oh, yeah, I've been taking the children to the library and we've been shopping and we've had a nice day out and we've been playing in the paddling pool. And then it started, I started adding things about how this relationship had been. And people said, that's not a healthy relationship. You know, that's not a good place to be. You really, you deserve better, you know. And I started thinking, maybe they're right. Maybe, you know, even though this on the surface looks okay, there is this, this undercurrent there of, of, of intimidation and, and aggression. Um, and eventually I told a friend how things had been. And because she didn't laugh at me or tell me I was stupid and she was very supportive, I kind of got the confidence to tell my mum. And my mum was obviously horrified. And she said, right, well, you know, I'm gonna do whatever I can to, to help you out of there. Um, and yeah, so um, April the, I think it was April the 11th, something like that, April 2001 anyway. Um, we moved out. I left and, and I almost didn't go because he leading, I told him I was leaving and he was okay with it. Actually. I think he realized that he, that things weren't good. I think he probably always known it would come eventually. Um, but he, he, he cried and we hugged and I, I almost, there was that point when I was almost, you know, that eight years earlier feeling sorry for him. Oh, I can't go. I need to stay. Um, but this time I kind of held firm and we moved into a, a a grotty little house that we we were able to rent um moved with just our clothes and, and some books and some toys yeah we didn't have any furniture we didn't have any kitchen stuff or anything um and we we literally started from scratch um we we got some furniture donated by a, a local charity um the kids were two so katie was six and dan was three i think uh, well, Katie was just coming up to seven and Dan was three. Um, they didn't have any beds, but somebody gave us a camp bed and somebody gave us a single mattress. And that was their that was their their bed for the next six months. And so I could sort something else out. Um, and and we we started literally from scratch. 
Um, but we were safe, you know, but I was, I was safe. They were, they were never in danger anyway, but I was safe. And it was kind of like the start of my life. It was almost like the start of my adult life. Um, knowing I could go in, I could shut the door behind me. And that was mine. That was my place. And nobody could touch me and nobody could scare me and nobody could intimidate me. Which is um, just, it's, it's almost the most basic thing that should yeah. be, that's so easy to take for granted when you've got it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so easy to accept not having it when it really isn't something to accept. Um, Gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's crazy how much of myself I lost in that relationship. Mm. Um, you know, how many times I compromised my own opinions or you know, I compromised on my own opinions or my own likes and dislikes um, because it was easier just to become this kind of husk of a person who didn't really have opinions, who didn't really have any strong views on anything, who didn't have a past because everything he did was led by this, this ferocious jealousy mm. um, that I'd had a past that didn't involve him, that I had a present that could not involve him. Yeah, the, if we went out and, and he thought I was looking at someone, even though we were together, that was an issue. You know, I'd, it was this. So much of that jealousy. kind of behaviour comes from huge insecurities. Mm. Um, and it's really sad. And, do you know, I, I so many clients that I speak to, because it's, it's not something I advertise an awful lot, actually, but I, I see a lot of clients who have uh, been through you know, either have PTSD or have been through abusive relationships, quite often uh, sexually abused, um, whether that's when they're younger or through a relationship or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so often, in the first time I talk to them, before I've even actually had a session, but just the initial consultation, a chat to see if we're right to work together, I can, I can quite often be the first person that's told them that that behaviour is not acceptable. That's mm-hmm. not okay. Um, and you shouldn't have to accept that. Um, And just the relief that some people experience from someone else, and it's not about me, it's like whoever it is, but just someone else validating and saying what you've been through. I was about to say a rude word on my own podcast there. What (gasps) you've been through is not acceptable um, and it's not your fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it took, it took me a long time to, to to kind of come to terms with everything that happened. Um, sometimes I think I still haven't quite really, but you know, it's 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 kind of always there with me. Um, the interesting thing is that that he he sadly um, so we moved out in in two thousand. Um, I just turned thirty when we moved out, um, and I, I spent a few years then kind of reliving my twenties. I went a bit wild for a bit when I he he'd have the children at the weekends and they were my time to go a bit crazy so that was that was quite good fun but um he died quite suddenly in 2013 um and that was all very complicated because the kids had been the children had seen him regularly up till two years before that and then he'd he'd actually threatened me again he'd there'd been an incident and he threatened me and they said well look if you're going to be like that dad we, we don't want to see you um, so apart from a couple of times, they hadn't seen him for two years. Um, and then we heard that he'd, he'd had a stroke and then he died and it, he had all sorts of complications, perforated bowel and all sorts of, I don't know what was going on. Um, and he was, he was 47 when he died. So, you know, he was, he was very young. Um, and it left me feeling really weird because 
I realized that even though I'd left him 13 years earlier, I still had that victim mentality. I still felt like I was, I was the victim. Um, and all of a sudden, the, the perpetrator wasn't actually here at all. It didn't exist anymore. And I was like, well, where does that leave me? I've, I've been this man's victim for all these years and all of a sudden he's gone. And I don't know who I am anymore. And it, that was a really, really quite strange, um, strange period. Um, because obviously I was, I was helping the, the children through losing their father. Um, and um, my daughter, who was 18 at the time, and, and in, just at the end of her first year at university, she became the executor of his will and she was responsible for selling his house and all that kind of thing. So I, I you know, did what I could to, to support her through that. But also I was dealing with these really confused feelings um, for me of, of well, well, yeah, where, where do I stand now? Who am I? And I'm only just now starting to work out who I am. You know, that's another sort of, what, eight years on? Part of the challenge, I guess, is, uh, you know, what has happened is never going to have not happened, yeah? Um, Mm. And this is the same for for anything that we look back on. Our experiences make us, they inform who we are. It doesn't mean that we don't have the power Mm. to choose where we go with that, what we do with that. And we tend to go through phases and, and normally there's, there's this common kind of phase that you go through of, oh, well, I can just pretend like it didn't happen now. And that feels, you know, it is a step forward compared to living in it. Mm-hmm. But by doing that, you're still kind of being controlled by it or influenced by it. When you get to that point where you accept that actually it's never going to have not happened. It absolutely is a part of who I am. But mm-hmm. there's strength that comes from that as well it becomes so much easier to to continue to move forward with it rather than trying to run forward from it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really interesting in relation to something to do with my son that we'll maybe come to a little bit later on, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of jumping on a little bit in the, in the story. <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to definitely have to make this a two-parter to come back and carry on talking about <laughs> So, um, but one thing I really did want to touch on here is that you said, um, so the first time round you went to leave and then felt sorry for him and stayed. The second time round, you almost did the same again, but you held firm. I think that was your wording. Mm. For those Mm. people that are listening who maybe have some similar experience themselves or are going through something similar, obviously the first thing I'd say is talk to someone that you can trust and rely Mm. on. Uh, get in touch with me if yeah. you want I'll chat to you about it um, but what what for you do you think really made the difference between giving in to that feeling sorry for him and saying no I need to hold firm what, what's the key there what's the the trick the secret I think there were two two things one the first thing was that the first time around it was just me uh, I mean this this is this is a rubbish reason actually because it shows that I absolutely had no value myself whatsoever it was just me so it kind of didn't matter and the second time around I had my children and all of a sudden I was responsible for someone else and and that kind of I didn't want them to see me go through anything I didn't want them to be the the product of of that kind of upbringing um so I did it sort of 
possibly more for them than for me, which is not a good reason, really. I should have been doing well, it for me, but, you know. That's, a, a, yeah. reas a reason is a reason. Uh, it, it's very easy to look and say, oh, this mm. is a good thing or a bad thing. It is what it is. You can't change how you felt in that moment. Um, I would love for you to have been strong within yourself and, and given yourself or perceived that value that you do have um, to mm. be able to make that choice. Absolutely, that's great. But it doesn't yeah. mean that your reason is a bad reason the second time mm. around. Um, yeah. What it does do is highlight something that I know that you've worked on since then through conversations we've had, not on the podcast, um, that, <laughs> that you have an opportunity to identify and work on building your own self-confidence and self-esteem, or, or you did, mm. following on from that experience. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was the other key thing, actually, that because I had, it's what you said, talk to someone, because I had talked to, I talked to friends I talked to my mum and my mum has always been my, my biggest ally in life. You know, she, she's, she means everything to me. My mum does um, because she knew. And because I'd also written on this diary and the, the diary, it was kind of a, a forerunner of Facebook. I suppose you wrote stuff and people commented on it. Mm -hmm. So because I, I got this kind of online community of friends who were offering me support and advice and help and were kind of cheering me on. Um, that then actually gave me the confidence to say, do you know what? I don't need this anymore. I can do this on my own. It's not going to be easy, but I can do it. Um, so, yeah, so that was I did have enough confidence and enough strength to do it. And I got that through being able to talk to, to people about it and getting their their support and knowing that it wasn't me on my own. You know, I did have have people kind of people around me who were, were looking out for me. Excellent. So on that note, if there's anyone listening to this now that that doesn't feel ready to talk to someone or or pick up the phone or connect with me or whatever, uh, but wants to be able to have a safe space like that. If you're on Facebook, search for Empower Yourself and Others. It's the Mind Affinity Facebook group. It's completely free and it's a closed group. So anything you post in there can only be seen by the people in that group. If when you join that group, there's someone specific that you, uh, don't want to see any of your posts and are concerned that they might try and uh, follow you around the, around Facebook, do feel free to, to drop me a message or on the comments when you join the group and answer the questions, mention it in there and I'll make sure that it's a safe place for you where you can share your experiences with a friendly and supportive community. Yeah. Cool, right, well that's, more than all the time we have um, really, um, for we've, today. We've barely, we've barely touched on anything. We've, wow. we've barely scratched the surface. So we'll definitely have to talk some more. Um, but just before we go, and I, I, you, you're probably expecting this because I know you've listened to past episodes of the podcast. So final question before we leave, everyone that's mm. listening right now, if you could share one pearl of wisdom, one thought, one idea, one thing, to share with our listeners before we go today, what would that thing be? When people ask you if you're okay, if you're not okay, don't be afraid to say that. Yeah. Um, I think we we spend a lot of our lives, you know, people say, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And actually you're not fine at all. Um, and we hide so much of what's going on in reality. And sometimes all you need to do is say, well, actually, do you know what? I'm having a really bad time at the minute. And that can open up the door to you getting whatever help, supports you need 
to move you out of, of a, a, a bad situation. And it doesn't have to be as bad a situation as, as you know, being in, a, in a, a domestic violence situation. But just if things aren't right with you, don't pretend they are. Yeah, absolutely. Such a, great, such a great message to share. Absolutely. I, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday. They asked, oh, how's your day going? I said, well, not great, but it'll be all right. I'm like, oh, what's up? <laughs> oh, well, actually, I just had to take a rabbit to be put down at the vets, and that's not particularly fun. Um, and, you know, all of the stuff around that. It's not that I'm struggling and, and, and really need help and support, but I'm, I'm terribly honest. When people ask how I am, I have a tendency to tell them the truth, whether they want it or not. Um, but even, even just being able to say, I actually, not great, but I will be. Um, and here's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It just, because when you don't, what you're doing is you're invalidating your own feeling, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you're telling yourself yeah. that, uh, to, that it's not worth talking about or it's not acceptable to feel however you're feeling. And that's just never true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really brilliant note to end yeah. on. Thank I you so, so much. I think so. No, I think so many misunderstandings come as well when we're not feeling 100%. And so we're a bit more sensitive. We're a bit more, yeah, it's easier for someone to touch a nerve with us. Mm. And they don't know that they've done it because we've said, oh, I'm fine. Everything's all right in my world. And then there's, there's something there. They say something and, and we bite or we fall apart or we go home and, and it's plaguing, you know, it, it's on your mind all night. And it's because you've not been honest. If they knew yeah. that you were struggling with what it might be, you know, then, then they'd have, they, would, they would treat you differently. You know, they, yeah. Absolutely. That was a bit of a waffle. <laughs> no, no, it, uh, it was it was a very valid point. Um, I, I swore at someone the other day that I really care about, really care about, um, and I told them to f off. Uh, and it was nothing to do with it. I know, I know that it's so not me, uh, and not how I would choose to behave. Uh, and I felt awful for it. Um, but it also did open up the conversation. Luckily, she's very understanding. Um, and it, it opened up a channel of conversation so I could explain it and, and everything else. But, um, you know, that that was entirely 100% about me. It was not about her at all. Um, and it was, it was literally just in a moment, kind of wasn't prepared to deal with a thing that was brought up. Um, and it was meant... I, I genuinely believe I intended to say it in a much more jokey tone than I did, but then it just came out angry. Um, and really it just highlighted an issue I had. Um, and uh, obviously I, I apologized and <laughs> spoke about it. I'm not pretending <laughs> perfect. I'm far from it. Um, but taking the time to recognize, reflect and acknowledge it and be humble with it um, just can really make a difference. But yeah, it comes yeah. from being open and being honest, doesn't it? That's the important thing. Yeah, I'm I'm fine. Are probably the worst the worst words in the English language, I think, because uh, you know, we're uh, there are times when we're fine, but actually we're normally not. We're normally above fine or below fine. You know, <laughs> so why not say I'm having a wonderful day? Or actually, today's a really crappy day, and I could do with talking about it, or I could do with being left alone. Or but that's I'm not fine. Very it's just British, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about British? Just be true to yourself and, you know. 
Exactly. Yeah. Alison, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. It's been really great getting to know a bit more about different elements of, of who you are and, and your past. I feel like there's so much more to talk about, so we'll have to have you back on for a future episode again as well. No, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And if people want to find out more about you or are intrigued by uh, your, like your books and stuff, oh, you've got your own podcast, haven't you? So where can people find you? Um, the best place to find me is my business website, which is theprooffairy.com. Um, that will tell you all about me and what I do for work and my podcast, which is called Conversations with Authors, which is what it says. Um, and if you've got an interest in ADHD, then my book is called The Boy From Hell, contentious, uh, controversial title, I know. Yeah. Um, and I also have a website, um, www.adhdkids.org.uk. Awesome. Thanks very much. <laughs>